0: We are wrapping up a three-week series that we have called I Object, and at the heart of this series is a verse in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. We'll have this up on the screens so you can see what it says. But Luke chapter 2 verse 10 says this, and the angel said to them, fear not, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And uh, what we believe, taking the word of God literally, is that the story in the season of Christmas is about this beautiful invitation to experience, to receive great joy, and it applies to all people. And we want in on this. If there is great joy, if there is fullness of joy available to us, we want in on this, and we want those in our world to be in on it. Uh, the problem is that for for many of us, there are obstacles and objections that keep us from experiencing that great and that full joy. And what this series has been was just acknowledging the fact that although great joy is available, there are obstacles that keep us, if we're honest, from experiencing that joy. And we've been looking at what the scriptures have to say about some of those things that stand in the way. Week one, uh, we met uh, a couple of uh, characters. We met a guy named Luke and a guy named Theophilus. And these two guys represent what I would call um, the intellectual obstacle of doubt. And they represent those of us who might stand at a distance from experiencing joy because it's just not rational. Virgins don't get pregnant and God doesn't become a baby. So because that doesn't make sense to me, I reject it and therefore I keep joy at. A distance, And so we talked about the fact that the Christmas story is actually not a fairy tale. It's not fiction. Um, it's not make-believe. It is a historical fact that happened in our time and in our space and in our history. And so you can bank on it. You can count on it. Which means the joy that's offered is actually for you. And it's actually real. Uh, last week we met... Two other characters, a sweet, sweet, elderly couple of Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Elizabeth would represent what I would call the the objection, the emotional objection of disappointment. Um, And they represent those of us who would say, I hear all this talk about joy, and I've, I've heard all these rumors about how there is joy available to me, but I just can't get there because my heart is still living under the weight of the disappointments of longings unmet. And this couple represents two people who had lived for decades and decades and decades with disappointment. And yet the Christmas story starts with them, which means our disappointment ought not to be a reason why joy stands at a distance. It actually ought to be a reason why we lean in more, because the story is for people like us. And by the way, if you missed either week, we'd encourage you to catch up on um, our podcast or missionpoint.net. You can uh, listen to the messages there for free, um, of course. Uh, this morning, we want to wrap our series by meeting two um, more characters who show up in the Christmas story, but often don't get quite as much press as some of the other key Players, but I think they're going to help surface what I believe may actually be the greatest objection and the greatest obstacle that stands between us and the joy that the Christmas story offers. That stands between those we love in the world around us and the joy that Jesus offers. And um, uh, we want to meet and compare these two crazy characters Um, One whose name is Herod, and the other whose name is John. Uh, We meet both of them in uh, Luke chapter 1, but we get to know more about them later on in the Christmas story. Um, Herod. Uh, Herod shows up in Luke chapter 1 verse 5 for the very first time, and he shows up merely as a chronological uh, marker, a a reference point to give us a sense of when in history the Christmas story occurred. And um, it simply says this. I'll have this up on the screen so you can see it. Um, Luke chapter 1 verse 5 um, says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, that's him, There was a priest named Zechariah who we met last week. So if you're wondering, I'm curious to know what was happening in the political arena. At the time, Luke would say, hey, here's a little note for your journal entry. At the time of the Christmas story, a guy named Herod was the king of that world, um, that region, that area. Herod was on the throne. Herod was in power. Herod was in power charge. Um, Now, I'm a nerd, and so I tend to find Keen's juxtapositions like this thoroughly intriguing, uh, that when the Christmas story starts here in in verse 5, we discover that that when the king of the world started to make his journey into our world, a guy named Herod was the king of that particular world. And that's going to become a significant piece as we continue to get to know these characters. Luke doesn't have much more to say um, about Herod, but we learn a little bit more about him from Matthew's Christmas account. Um, Who was this Herod guy? Uh, What was he about? And um, how does he play into The story. Uh, If you have a copy of the scripture, please turn uh, to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 3, but um, we'll start here in Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to have the verses up on the screen. Um, If you don't own a Bible, we would love to get a Bible in your hands. And the simplest way to do that is at the end of the service, just head to the connection corner and say, Can I please have a Bible? And we'll hand you one that is yours to keep, our gift to you. But um, while you're turning uh, to Matthew chapter 2, let me give uh, those of you who might not know much about Herod... Just uh, an introduction to him that I think will help make sense of um, what we read about him in uh, Matthew chapter 2. Um, now it's good for us to know right f- from the beginning that biblical history has not looked favorably on uh, this character named Herod. And for pretty good um reason. Um, Herod was uh, born in about 73 BC. Uh, He was born in a town a little bit south of Judea. Um, He had Edomite heritage, uh, but was raised full-fledged Jew. Um, Herod grew up in a family that were political power houses, very influential, very powerful political family. Um, Unfortunately for them, in that particular context, Judea was under the powerful thumb of the Roman Empire. So uh, power, if you're going to have any of it, had to come by your connection to um, the empire of Rome. As Herod grew up inheriting the family genes, um, he was incredibly powerful power-hungry. Not only power-hungry, he was also very politically savvy. And so he figured out a way to get in good with, you know, the Caesar of Rome at the time, a guy by the name of Mark Antony. Um, Mark Antony looked at Herod and said, I like this kid. I like this guy. I like how willing he is to sell out his people and suck up to me in order to have a little bit of power. He could actually come in handy as an asset to the Roman Empire. So listen, Herod, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to impute some power to you. I am going to make you king and give you power over your people. You are now the king of the Jews. And then he sent Herod on his way back to Judea. Now, here's what would be good to know about Herod. Herod wasn't just a power-hungry guy. He was deeply insecure, and he was incurably paranoid. And I don't know if you've ever seen what happens when you give someone who's deeply insecure and incredibly paranoid power. It's a scary thing. And that was true. For Herod himself. Um, So he gets back to uh, Judea. um, And his insecurity and his paranoia start to take shape. Because anybody who looks at him funny, disagrees with him, or isn't loyal or aligned to him. They become the enemy and he figures out a way to get rid of them by any means necessary. Um, but his insecurity was interesting because Herod also wanted to be liked by people. So he was torn between this, I want to be, you know, power and I want loyalty, but I also want people to like me. It's fascinating. So by the way, when he got home, one of the first things he did was he ousted a guy named Antigonus. Antigonus was a political figure in that area um, who had a lot of influence and the Jews actually liked him more than they liked Herod, which drove Herod crazy. As much as he wanted to be liked. So he got rid of this guy. The Jews weren't happy that he got rid of Antigonus. And so in order to make the Jews happy. He said I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry Antigonus' niece. So he marries this guy's niece. After outing him. Offing him. I mean let's putting it uh, less delicately. He marries his niece. Almost to say to the people. See I'm a nice guy. I mean she likes me. Um, the problem with that. Was his wife Doris said. Oh, I object to this little romantic, you know, move that you've made here. Herod said, I'm sorry, you object? Yep, I object. And so he ended up running his wife out of the area along with their little baby boy. Nobody disagrees with me. No one disagrees with me. So his wife is gone. Uh, She's out of the picture. And his paranoia and his insecurity just starts to skyrocket. And he just starts to do some crazy, crazy things. But one of the things that made him most paranoid was his theological prowess. Herod knew his theology. He knew his theology. And what his theology told him was something that drove him crazy. It was the fact that, hey, Rome may have the political sway to call you the king of the Jews. But it's ultimately God who decides who the rightful king of his people is. And so Herod lived with this awareness that he was illegally sitting on a throne that did not really belong to him. And further than that, his theology made him aware of the fact that one day a Messiah was going to come into the world to be the real true king of the Jews. Which made him look over his shoulder at anybody who even seemed to be looking funny at the throne. It made him incredibly paranoid. He started to do some crazy stuff. Like he hired a secret police um, unit to go among the people to kind of monitor his likability. And if he started to hear that people were speaking negatively about him. Or they didn't like him. People would just start to strangely disappear. Not to be heard of. Again, he became so paranoid that it's said that he hired a detail of about 2,000 soldiers to be his personal bodyguards to protect him. Oh, Herod was crazy. He went a step further. At one point, he thought he had heard whispers in his own home coming from his wife. And he suspected, I wonder if she's trying to make a play for my throne. And then the same wife, Antigonus' niece, that he took in as his wife, he had her thrown into prison and then executed. And while he was at it, he executed two of his own sons because they showed a little too much promise. That was too threatening to Herod. Dude was crazy. And in one of the strangest things he did in his lifetime (laughs) was he made an edict. He created a law that said, in the event that I should die, I want you to execute a significant number of political, influential leaders in the general region that people love. It's like, wait, why? And here's why he wanted that. So that when I die, there is the guarantee... That there'll be genuine mourning around the time of my funeral. He was so sure people would celebrate his death and his departure that no one would weep. So he said, kill some people so at least I can have the assurance that there will be crying. Herod was a baby who had been given power, deeply insecure, and incredibly, incurably paranoid. Which makes what we read about him in Matthew chapter 2 all the more pointed, right? Look at what it says when we re meet him in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, (laughs) Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Um, okay, does anyone know these guys must not be from around here? I mean, of all the people you could float this question to, they pick Herod. But it makes sense. The king of the Jews, we've heard, is born. And so we came to the capital city. And where else would we go then? To the palace to find the king of the Jews. Verse 3, when King Herod heard this, duh, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem disturbed with him. Yeah, this dude is very disturbed. And yeah, when he gets disturbed, everyone gets disturbed because heads tend to roll when he's unhappy. And now he's discovering not just anyone wants his throne, but rumor is... The rightful king of the Jews that the nation has been anticipating has come to take his place. And I think it's interesting, by the way, that Herod doesn't argue when they say we've come to worship the king of the Jews. He doesn't say I'm the king of the Jews because he knows that he's occupying someone else's throne and apparently he's come. To take it. So he starts an inquiry, which is a scary, scary thing. Verse 4 When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, hey, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, I know people define worship differently. But um, I really think Herod is using the word wrongly here. And for anyone who might have dozed off, he be lying. He has no intention to go and worship baby Jesus. He has every intention to go and execute him and execute his family in case they have more little kingly babies. But uh, an angel uh, shows up and uh, warns the visitors not to go back and report to Herod and uh, the angel prompts Mary and Joseph to sneak Jesus out of the country. And Jesus ends up living in Egypt for um, a small stint. When Herod figures out that no one's coming back to give him a report, he comes unglued. And he does probably one of the more deplorable things in his reign. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 2. It says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So drunk on power. Such that in order to keep it and to protect his throne from Jesus, he kills dozens of babies. And it's said that a chorus of weeping erupts in that area. Needless to say, biblical history has not looked favorably on Herod. Crazy, insecure Paranoid, power-hungry guy. And I was just thinking, aren't we all kind of like him, though? I mean, just at at least a little bit. I mean, if we're honest. I'm just asking because my suspicion is that none of us have read the Christmas story and said, Oh my goodness, I am so much like Herod. But aren't we all kind of a little bit like him? Maybe not as extreme, but I mean, honestly, aren't we all just a little infatuated with power and popularity? I mean, aren't we all just a little obsessed with protecting a certain perception in the mind of others? Aren't we just a little over-concerned about maintaining a certain position in whatever place we work or whatever relationships we Aren't we a little bit infatuated with power and popularity if we're honest? I mean, if we're honest, aren't we willing to say some of the most diabolical things about other people in order to keep them at bay and to prop us up? I'm not saying we're going to kill people, but aren't we a little bit willing to throw people under the bus and decimate their characters if it means that we preserve a certain level of face and a certain level of position and a certain level of popularity? Aren't we willing to maybe get a little bit ahead at work, even if it means, you know, uh, saying some things about uh, a cold? worker. Aren't we a little obsessed with who likes and and who follows? That we are willing to do things we would never have imagined that we would do. I know that's true about me. That in order to protect image, to, to protect reputation, I'm willing to say things, lie, hide, throw you under the bus, because aren't we just all a little like Herod? Maybe at least a little more than we might think. But we'll come back to that. Because it's Christmas week. And I don't want to leave things on a sour note. So, so let's meet a slightly nicer person. Um, the character named John. Um, And you can turn over to Matthew chapter 3, we're going to spend uh, some time getting to know him um, there, uh, Matthew chapter 3. But last week we met John's um, elderly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and and, and long story short, they couldn't conceive um, until God sent an angel to announce that they would miraculously have a baby boy and that they're to name him John. Um, In fact, look up on the screens uh, what it says um, about him in Luke chapter 1, verse 14. It says, he, John, will be a joy and a delight to you, his parents, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, no kombucha tea for him. uh, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many um, of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. So awesome. Verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This guy named John would be born and bred. He would be created and called to help people by pointing them to and preparing them for the arrival of the person of Jesus in their world. And so his parents were instructed to make sure he lived a life set apart and committed um, because he was called To tell people to get ready for the Savior by turning away from their sins. So, uh, it happened just as the angel said John was born. And his parents, being faithful to God, raised John just the way the angel said. And uh, man, look at how this guy ends up growing up. The last verse of Luke chapter 1, verse 80, says this. And the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel all oh, man i like this guy i really like this crazy uh, we don't know how long, uh, but we know that John was so committed to living out his calling that he, he chose, he, he chose to, to disassociate himself, almost to distance himself from the cultural constraints. Um, of kind of living in civilization. And the dude lived out in the wilderness. Now, we don't know exactly where that was. Suspected somewhere in the Jordan River Basin. um, Somewhere between there and, um, you know, the mountains to to the west of the Dead Sea. We don't know exactly where, you know, his night-night rock was. But we know that this dude lived in the great out. Doors, scorpions, rattlers, and homeless John. Uh, Look at what we learn about Jesus' cousin. Um, Matthew chapter 3, which you should be um, turned to, I trust. But look at what it says um, in verse 1. We learn a little bit more about him. In those days, John, who's at this point nicknamed the Baptist, came... Preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight the paths for him. John's clothes, <laughs> oh man, they were made of camel's hair. I mean, how itchy. Would that situation have been? Uh, I mean, he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts like wild grasshoppers and some wild honey. I'm just telling you, your parents would not have approved of you hanging out with this crazy weird, strange, and awesome guy (laughs) named John. Just unshaven, just unkempt. And I'm going to venture out and say this was before the dawn of Axe Body Spray, so probably undeodorized. Dude was funky and really, really strange. Just living on that gluten-free, you know, organic paleo diet, you know, dressed in, in leather and some Birkenstocks. So pretty! the original hipster. Pretty much the first hipster ever, if you ask me. But more than his manner was his message. He knew his calling was to call people uh, back to God, and he did it with that old-school, fiery prophet flair. He just didn't mind stepping on toes. He had no qualms telling the truth. He had zero obsession with power and popularity, which made him an incredible instrument in calling out the powerful religious and political leaders of the area. You know, something that would eventually get him imprisoned and executed by none other than Herod's son himself. But John would share so clearly. Turn from your sin because Jesus is coming and you would think that that kind of funky guy with that kind of fiery um, flair would offend and repel um, people. But the opposite ended up happening. People would actually start to take the taxing trip out of the city limits to go and look for this guy in the wilderness to hear what he had to say. Look at verse 5. It says, people went out to him um, from Jerusalem, the capital city, and all Judea, and the whole region of the Jordan. And they responded to his message, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Apparently, people were hungry for truth that pointed to hope. And before long, that weird homeless guy who ate grasshoppers and shouted a lot about a savior became the biggest show in town. People couldn't wait to hear what he had to say. And I find it so poetic and slightly ironic that the guy who wasn't looking for power and wasn't looking for popularity was bombarded with it. And so... What John did is he got himself an agent real quick, worked on a TV show and an organic honey line. No, nope. he, he, he refused to fall in love with the lights and the likes. He had no interest in power, no interest in popularity, just pointing people to Jesus. Just point people to Jesus. And one of the most beautiful um, pictures of who this man was and what he was about... Um, Is found in verse 11 of this chapter. Um, He says. I baptize you with water. For repentance. But after me. Comes one who is more powerful than I. Whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. That is Awesome. You think I'm the big show. No correction. I am just the opening act for the main event. Jesus who is on his way. In fact, I don't consider myself worthy of sharing the same stage or sharing the same mic with him. He is in an entirely different league. I'm just warming up the crowd. When he gets here, I'm out because he's the show and it's ultimately about him. I can baptize you in that pond over there, you know, and soak you on the outside, but he will be able to baptize you with fire and fill you with his spirit on the inside. I can't hold a candle to Jesus. My job is to simply prepare the way and then get out of the way and let him have his place. And then in, in one of the conversations that John is probably most well-known for, some of his followers come to him a little bit later and they announce to John, alarmed by this, hey, not only has this Jesus shown up and been born into the world, but he is gaining popularity and he is gaining power. And more than that, he is taking popularity. From us. In fact, some of our followers are going after him and we are losing some of our power. What are we going to do about this? And a beautiful response comes from John. John chapter 3, verse 28. He says, Look up on the screens here. Um, he says, You yourselves can testify I am not, that I said, I am not the Messiah. But I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. In other words, the people of God belong to Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom. In other words, the bridegroom's assistant, which is me, waits and listens for him. And I love this. And is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And that joy is now complete. Wait a minute. You're not threatened by this guy who's coming and is taking some of your followers and is taking some of your likes and is taking some of your people and is taking some of your power. That was the whole point. In fact, nothing brings me fuller joy than to hand over his place. To him, And then he says, most famous words of John the Baptist in verse 30. He, Jesus, must become greater. I, John, must become less. It was his show the whole time. I was just helping to prepare people by pointing them to him. Nothing brings me greater joy than to see him take his place and biblical history looks fondly on John okay now what do these two stories have to do with each other and what do these two stories have to do with Christmas and and what do these two stories have to do with us solid question The Christmas story is about Jesus, the King, coming into our world to bring joy. The Christmas story is about Jesus, the King, coming into our world to bring joy. And please hear me you will either respond to him like herod or you will respond to him like john There's no in between you are either going to respond to him like herod or like john because both of them were sitting in places that rightly belonged to jesus The only question is, are you going to be willing to choose to give up his rightful place to him when he shows up to take it? I don't know if you knew this. But many of us are sitting in a place that rightly belongs to Jesus. Because if Jesus is king in church, king he is. He has no rivals. He has no equals. He stands alone. A king he is. And if he is the king, then it's his rightful place to sit on the throne of every life and have the right to call all the shots. Christmas isn't just about sweet little baby came into a manger. Christmas is about the king of the universe came into the world to take his place. And every single life is his throne to sit on and call the shots. We will respond to the Christmas story either as Herod or as John. And heaven's history will look at us fondly or not so fondly, depending on which one we choose. Will I gladly get out of his seat, or will I be so drunk on power, so drunk on popularity, so bent on control, that I refuse to let him increase, while I decrease? Sitting in this room right now, you are choosing to either be Herod or to be John. Not just this Christmas, but for life. And if you're not sure which one you are, let me just ask you a a few questions. Um, Are you more concerned about your popularity and reputation, or the popularity and reputation of Jesus? Are you more concerned about what people think about you and your approval rating, or are you more concerned about what people think about Jesus and that They are pointed and enamored with him. And some of you know the answer to the question by virtue of the fact that you still haven't told the folks you work with and some folks in your family that you belong to Jesus and that you would love for them to be pointed to him. Because if you do that, you're going to be viewed as John the Baptist, that weird guy who's on the outskirts of convention and you're kind of strange and funky and no one wants much to do with you. But no, you want to sit on a throne in the capital city, in the palace where everyone thinks highly of you and applauds you. So you will not even speak of him to people in the world around you. That is a Herod move. Are you more concerned about how many followers you have or how many followers he does? Are you John or are you Herod? Another question that I think might help reveal the answer to that is, is there any area of your life that you know you are not willing to give him complete control over? No, no, Jesus, welcome into the world. Welcome, welcome. You can have all of this, but not that. That's a Herod move. It means there is some level of control I still want to maintain over my life. But the problem is I cannot maintain control and have him be the king. Does Jesus get to decide about your finances? Or is that, you know, that's your control. You you decide that. Now, you may tip Jesus 10% on Sunday. But, (laughs) which is a mistake we often make. Like, it's his money anyway. He, he lets you steward 90% or whatever else, you know, you choose um, to hang on to. But uh, uh, is he king of your finances? Does Jesus get to decide on your marital status? Or you're like, no, 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 me and Tinder, we've got this thing down. Jesus, you can take control of everything else, but not this. I know what's going to happen in my life, and I'm going to work to make it happen. Can he decide What country you and your family end up living in? Or have you determined, no, we sit on that throne and we need to keep a certain radius, you know, range within our family so that we can organize, you know, visits and childcare and and those kinds of things. So no, we have no intention of, does he get to call the shots in that? Can he determine that it's time for you to radically simplify your living situation? Does Jesus get to own your retirement? If he is the king and the king he is, then Christmas is an announcement that the king has come into this world to take his throne. And the question is, how will you respond to that? You have one of two options. For some of us, the objection is not an intellectual objection. It's not doubt in the historicity of Christmas. For some of us, it's not an emotional objection. It's not about my disappointments. For some of us, if not most of us, our real and ultimate objection is a volitional objection. I do not want to choose to surrender control. I do not want to choose to get off the throne of my life. I want to call the shots. The obstacle standing between me and the Joy Christmas office is I don't want to move from this seat of being in charge. I'm okay with Jesus coming into the world. That's great as long as he leaves this area of my life intact. And the question is not complicated. Are you ready to turn over the power? Are you ready to give him his rightful Place and to get out of the seat of control. You're either choosing to be Herod or John. Um, and by the way, if you're not sure, you know, man, is there an area of my life that I'm not willing to surrender? I'm not sure. Or, you know, am I more concerned about Jesus' popularity or my popularity? Here's another question you can ask yourself Am I full of joy? Am I full of joy? Because if you're not, it's likely you're holding on to something that is Jesus' place to own or Jesus' place to decide. You are likely still trying to control a certain area of your life that you will not release to him. You're trying to be king over something And here's the Christmas story. Jesus offers joy to all, but Jesus wants his throne. Jesus offers joy to all, but Jesus wants it all. Give me my throne. We're not co-kings. We're not 50-50. You don't get Monday through Saturday and I get Sunday. Jesus offers joy, but he wants his crown. And if we hand him his crown, he will crown us with the fullness of joy that the Christmas season and story offers. And you know this, you cannot be in control because some of us will walk out of here and will choose to say no. I don't think I can give this up. Nope, I don't think I can give that up if you ask me. No, I think I'm still more concerned. The reality is you know, if you make that choice, you cannot live with fullness of joy because it will make you insecure, it will make you paranoid because you constantly be looking over your shoulder, you know, to see who has more likes and to see if somebody's coming after your job because your job is the thing or you're going to be looking around to see, you know, if somebody's gaining more popularity, you're going to be comparing to see who is, uh, which kid has a greater scoring average, and you're going to constantly live in this restless place, and you cannot live with joy if you're clinging onto these things. You will be immensely paranoid that somebody's about to leave you, someone's about to betray you. or, or what's going to happen if? And Jesus says, "I'm here, and I offer you joy, but let me be king over." everything. Let me be king over all. And I love the fact that while John's rights to run his life decreased, what happened? His joy increased. I love that about the Bible. I love that uh, about the story of Christmas and the story of grace, the story of the gospel. Because hang on a second, wait a minute. John is this weird, funky, hipster guy who is homeless, living out in the woods, eating honey-dipped locusts. Herod is living in the capital city in the palace, the guy in charge, and John says, I am full of joy, and Herod is offing and executing his family members because he is restless. Isn't that crazy that the person who surrendered everything to Jesus and was willing to get out of the way and give him the throne is the one who claims fullness of joy is mine? And that's true for many of us, we're still trying to inherit the situation, believing. Maybe if I claw or cling onto something a little bit tighter, that joy will come. And yet joy is paved in surrender. Jesus says, give me my throne and I will give you joy. And even though you go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you and you will be full of joy. And even if you take a major demotion at work, I will be with you and you will have fullness of joy. And even if you live homeless with a rock in the wilderness somewhere, you will have fullness of joy. The offer of joy is real, but the obstacle for many of us is will I surrender and have him control and have him be king? Matthew 16 verse 24, uh, then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to cling onto their lives and cling onto power and cling onto popularity and cling onto stuff will lose it anyway, just like Herod did. But whoever willingly loses their life or surrenders themselves for me, to me, will find the very thing they most deeply longed for. Are you Herod or John this Christmas? Because the offer of joy is yours. If you would simply say, Jesus, I surrender, take your place, have it all. I suspect you might even start to walk out of this room with a new sense of release, a a, a new sense of joy, which is why Jesus came. So, Lord, thank you for coming into our world. Thank you for offering us joy. I know, Lord, so often we just pray that you impose joy on us, and yet you long to fill us with joy. And to do that, you want us to empty ourselves of control. You want us to empty ourselves of the need to be in charge and to call the shots. So, Lord, may you hear a chorus of hearts that are saying to you this Christmas, we surrender, have it all. And, Lord, in your gracious promised response, would you say, well, then have All my joy. So release us, Lord, with the courage to choose, surrender, and enjoy joy for your name's sake. Amen.